Good morning. Today is the sixth Sunday after Pentecost, July 15, 2001. This is the sermon delivered to the congregation of the Myers Park Baptist Church by the Reverend Dr. H. Stephen Shoemaker, our senior minister. The gospel reading is from Mark 7, verses 14 through 16 and 20 through 23. The epistle lesson is from Galatians 6, verse 15, and 2 Corinthians 5, verses 16 and 17. Dr. Shoemaker's sermon is titled, The Bible, Homosexuality, and Us. Now, here's Dr. Shoemaker. Today, I would like to begin a discussion, not end one, on homosexuality, the Bible, and us. Can we be a biblical people and a people who welcome and honor homosexual persons in our community? I think so. But the easiest and simplest way to read scripture is to read it as condemning of homosexual persons. So it requires of us a more careful reading. Homose human sexuality is a complex reality. The Bible is a complex document. I will try this morning to follow the maxim that goes, make it as simple as possible, but not simpler. Today's sermon is an exercise in biblical interpretation in the hope of a greater inclusion and welcome of homosexual persons in the church and in society. You will get a chance to add to the conversation and talk back. This week in our mission trip at Camden, New Jersey, in our nightly Bible study one evening, I asked the young pe people if they wanted to be part of the construction of my sermon and work with me through the text as well as part of the talk back after the sermon and they were game and so there we went with our questions and open Bibles. They have made, um, they're sitting here many of them today, they've made this sermon a better sermon. The stakes are high. The issue seems to be dividing the church in America, but it need not. We live in a culture that is rife with hatred, fear, and discrimination toward homosexual persons. The sports radio talk station 610 AM makes frequent fun of gay persons. There is a high incidence of suicide among teenagers and young adults due to the crisis of sexual identity. The youth told me, moreover this week, that the term gay has now mutated in current slang to be a general adjective, which means something negative, stupid, or weird. That's so gay is the expression, such as how viciousness gets embedded in our language. Carlisle Marney set the terms for the discussion in 1966, 35 years ago. First, he said, we will have to become and become known as a community of responsible involvedness. We must adopt a we-ness. Straight and gay persons are more alike than different. We are talking about us 
in our sexual vitalities and responsibilities, not about us and them. Secondly, we will have to become known and become known as a community of the guilty and of guilt, real guilt. For aren't we, he asks, all harmed harmers? None of us can pretend innocence. We have all been wounded and we have all in our various ways become wounders. There is a created goodness and belovedness to each and all of us as God's children. But we are also harmed harmers, wounded wounders, all of us. Third, the Christian community has to become and become known as the community of grace. We are called to be a community of compassion who embodies the unconditional love of God and forgiveness of sins. To use Marnie's words, the homosexually committed person has not fallen from grace, he or she has never heard of it. I would add a fourth. The church is a community of the new creation in the midst of the old creation. The message of the gospel is this. God loves you exactly as you are. And it is from where you are that you are invited to build the banquet of the kingdom and manifest the new creation. Today we tackle the biblical passages used to condemn and exclude homosexual persons. I have them all uh, written out for you, transcribed for you in your worship bulletin. I also will offer you the New Testament texts that in my mind speak to their greater inclusion and acceptance. We covenant here in this church to exercise a critical examination of Scripture and to be open to all new light. Jesus said the Holy Spirit would continue to teach the church. I believe that the Holy Spirit is guiding us to a new understanding about homosexuality. Much as the Spirit of God led the church in the 19th century to revise drastically its biblical interpretations about slavery. There are risks in tackling this topic but there are greater opportunities for good. Here are two. One is that it is sometimes in the most difficult of issues and of the most difficult of life experiences that we are touched by the radicality of the grace of God revealed in Jesus the Christ. And secondly, the second is that this issue addressed publicly may help us all as we seek to live out our mysterious, wondrous, powerful, unruly, complicated, and conflicted sexual lives in ways that move towards sexual healing and sexual responsibility for us all. So let's, let's plunge bravely. Are you nervous? I'm a little bit. Bravely ahead. I have reproduced the five biblical passages which address homosexual conduct. I say the word conduct carefully rather than homosexuality 
because the biblical writers had no conception of anything like homosexual orientation. Text number one is from Genesis 19, the story of Sodom. Two angels in the guise of men come to visit Lot's house. All the men, young and old, of, of Sodom gather around Lot's house and, and, and issue this ominous demand. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out that we may know them. What the men have in mind is rape, gang rape. Lot refuses to release his guests, offers them instead his daughters, which reveals the lowest state of women at the time. The men insist on Lot's release of the guests. The angels then strike the men of Sodom blind and later the city is destroyed. The sin here is not homosexuality. It is the sin of rape. Later scripture identifies the sins of Sodom variously as inhospitality to strangers, injustice, greed, the lack of care for the poor, and general immorality not homosexuality. Text number two, Leviticus 18.22 and Leviticus 20.13. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. The Hebrew word there is tova, T-O-E-V-A-H, tova. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed abomination, tova they shall be put to death. These verses are from the Holiness Code of Ancient Israel, which had hundreds of rules about cleanness and uncleanness. Homosexual conduct between men is forbidden here as tova. But if you take a careful look at the whole Holiness Code, you see that it forbids a wide range of conduct, some of which we still consider destructive and immoral, like incest and adultery, some of which we consider morally neutral, for example, sex during a woman's monthly flow, and some of which we would never consider tova, like eating barbecue ribs, that is, unless your cholesterol is high. Jews and Christians alike take these passages and seek to determine what parts still hold moral force and which do not. We tend to agree on the Ten Commandments, but not on all the multiplication of those Ten Commandments, nor on the penalties imposed. In Numbers, for example, a man who picks up sticks on the Sabbath is to be put to death. In Deuteronomy, a son is to be put to death for disobeying his parents. The challenge for us is to make our moral discernments about these laws carefully, thoughtfully, consistently as possible. I use two criteria in my own interpretation of Scripture. The first comes from Augustine. Does my interpretation increase the love of God and neighbor or decrease it? The second is to use Jesus, the Word made flesh, as the key to biblical interpretation. What seems consistent with who he was, how he lived, what he taught? 
And we all seek the help of God's present Holy Spirit as we interpret Scripture. As the Apostle Paul said, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. We all tend to be selective literalists when we interpret Scripture. We can only hope to interpret Scripture consistently and thoughtfully and in ways that bring life and healing. Those are the Old Testament texts, three of them. There are three New Testament texts. I hope you're noting how few there are. The first New Testament text, it's number three in your guide, is 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. In chapter 6, Paul describes appropriate conduct for Christians. He begins the chapter by saying that Christians should not take other Christians to court. No lawsuits between Christians, between Christian brothers and sisters. Then in verses 9 and 10, he lists behaviors that are not fit for the kingdom of God. They are listed there for you. The immoral, the Greek word is pornoi, we get the word pornography from it. Idolaters, adulterers, male prostitutes, the translation is here, malakoi in the Greek, homosexual offenders, arsenokoitai in the Greek, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, slanderers, and swindlers. Now, please note our inconsistencies. Do we ever have discussions in church about greedy people joining the church? Or about greedy people becoming deacons? or marrying greedy people? Do we exclude alcoholics, swindlers, slanderers? But we also need to take a close look at the two Greek words used to identify homosexual conduct. Malakoi means literally soft. And arsenokoitai means literally two words put together, men and bed. We have tended through the years to translate these words in line with our current prejudices. I think that they are most accurately translated as I have today, male prostitutes and homosexual offenders. They, I think, refer to the most prevalent forms of homosexual conduct in the Greek Roman Hellenistic world. First, the use of young males and feminized men as prostitutes. And secondly, the older man, younger boy form of sexual behavior called at that time pederasty. We are talking here about exploitative, abusive, promiscuous sexual conduct. The biblical writers could have had no conception of homosexuality as an orientation or of a lifetime committed monogamous same-sex relationship. Text number four, Timothy 1, 9 through 10. Here is another list of behaviors presented as contrary to Christian doctrine and practice. Included are they? Men slayers, immoral persons, there's that word pornoi again, homosexual offenders, arsenokoitai, it just uses one of the words, not both the words, as in the previous text. Men stealers, think kidnappers or slave traders, liars, perjurers. 
Again, I would translate the word homosexual offenders as homosexual offenders. The, the emphasis on the word offenders describing exploitative homosexual conduct. Text number five. Romans 1, 18 through 2-1. Paul is describing what happens when we worship ourselves, the creature, rather than worship God, the creator. Idolatry takes many forms. Paul groups them into three forms and introduces each of the three groups with the words, God gave them up, underlined in your texts. First group, God gave them up in the desires of their hearts to uncleanness, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. This is a description of of generalized heterosexual immorality. Secondly, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Their women exchanged natural relations, the Greek physine, for unnatural paraphysine, and their men likewise gave up natural relations, physine, with women and were consumed with passion for one another. This refers, I believe, to the patterns of exploitative and abusive homosexual conduct I have described above. And we may well ask, what does against nature or unnatural mean to same-sex oriented persons? Thirdly, third group, God gave them up to unseemly things. In this group are those who engage in pornoi, that's the word immorality again, poneria, the word evil, those full of, here's a list, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil constructions, gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, proud, boastful, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, merciless. Have we left anybody out? Now Paul turns to the Jews who have been holding their noses through Paul's description of the first three groups. And he says, and so you, my fellow Jews, you too have no excuse when you judge another. For in passing judgment upon the others, you condemn yourselves, for you, the judges, do the same thing. This portion of chapter one, part of chapter two, has to be read in the context of a five chapter long theological discourse, which I am now gonna summarize for you quickly. Part one, the pagan Gentiles are without excuse because they have broken God's laws revealed in nature and in conscience. Part two, the pious Jews are without excuse because they have become judges of others while themselves breaking God's law revealed in Moses and to Israel. Part three, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, all. Part four, but miracle of miracles, we unrighteous folk have been set right by God, by his grace, have been set right with God by his grace as a gift through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a mercy seat. The mercy seat is an allusion to the high altar on the Jewish Day of Atonement. The death of Christ has become the Day of Atonement for
for the whole world. The once and for all forgiveness of sins, past, present, future. Part five, point five. In Adam, the old humanity, we all die. But in Christ, the new humanity and the new creation, we are all made alive. So, are you getting the great good news being announced in these five chapters? It is this. We are all in the same boat, the same belovedness, the same vulnerability, the same capacity for sin, but God's grace is for all and in all. Sin is strong, but grace is stronger. The old creation is being transformed into a new creation. Now those are the biblical passages, the six of them, used by some Christians to condemn homosexual persons. So we ask, what did Jesus say about homosexual conduct? If he is our guide to interpretation of scripture, it is important to know what he said. There's this pamphlet that I've seen in a narthex of a church along with the other tracts about one thing or another. The bold title of the little pamphlet reads, what Jesus said about homosexuality. You open it up and there are four blank pages. And the, and the last page says, that's right, nothing. Jesus is silent on the subject. Jesus' ethic did not deal with lists of clean and unclean rules. If that were all our religion was, I don't think I'd be here. His focus was on the heart. And his ethic had a seriously practical focus. Does it hurt people or help people? Moreover, he seemed especially tender-hearted toward those who had made sexual mistakes, perhaps because these folk were trying so hard to love and be loved, and perhaps because the religious folk were especially judgmental in their attitudes toward them. The story in the gospel text from John 8 captures the spirit of Jesus in relationship, I think, to the Levitical laws. Some men drag a woman to him who has been caught in the very act of adultery. Now, I don't know where the man was. It takes two to tango, but only the woman's dragged before them. They ask him if he should follow the law of Moses and have her publicly stoned to death. Jesus said, you who are without sin, cast the first stone. And then he stooped and wrote something in the ground. And then they began to slink away, every one of them, one by one, till the, just the two were left, Jesus and the woman. Where are your condemners, your judges? She, he said to her, there is no one here, she said. And he said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Here we have a picture of a Lord who forgives all our sin and who calls us to a higher moral path. Can we be such a community, a community of morals and mercy, of character and compassion? Here is, I think, the narrow way that leads to life. There are plenty of communities that choose one to the expense of the other. There's one more set of texts. 
The first, number nine in your list, is in Acts, where Peter and the church are struggling with what to do with unclean Gentiles who are believing in Jesus and wanting to join up those of Gentile orientation and Gentile lifestyle. Peter is struggling with the moral and racial repugnance that he feels toward Gentiles, whom he has been taught to consider tova, unclean. In Acts 10 and 11, we hear this story. A voice comes to Peter in a vision. He sees all this unclean food. The voice commands them to eat it. He's always been commanded to avoid such food. Peter refuses to eat it, but the voice says, what God has cleansed, you shall not call unclean or common. At that moment, messengers show up from a Gentile's house. His name is Cornelius. Cornelius is asking him to come to his house and tell him the story of the gospel. Peter is forbidden by Jewish law to go into this man's house and eat and drink with him. The Spirit drives home, however, the point of the vision. Those whom God has cleansed, you should not call common. Cornelius hears the gospel from Peter is baptized. The Holy Spirit falls upon Cornelius, and Peter says, How can I hinder God whose spirit has fallen upon these Gentiles? This has been my experience over 30 years with many gay Christians. I've seen the Spirit of God richly, deeply within them. How can I hinder God? The last set of texts are from the Apostle Paul. There are numbers seven and eight in your guide. In Galatians 6.15, Paul writes in, a, in an unforgettable flourish, circumcision means nothing. Uncircumcision means nothing speaking both anatomically and theologically. The only thing that matters is the new creation. The church today seems tragically fixed in a battle over old creation distinctions, while God is calling us to something more, to something greater, and that is the new creation. Circumcision means nothing. Uncircumcision means nothing. Jew means nothing. Gentile means nothing. Male means nothing. Female means nothing. Race means nothing. Class means nothing. Gay means nothing. Straight means nothing. The only thing that matters is the new creation. The new creation is everything. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, from now on, from this point, we regard no one from a human point of view, that is, by race or class or looks or money or sexual orientation or IQ or percentage of body fat. For if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. The old is gone. Look, everything is becoming new. In our day, new light is breaking forth from Scripture, from science, and from our own spiritual experience. I think I could be wrong. You could be wrong. 
I think it is saying, let us do away with sexual orientation as a moral category. Morality has to do with behavior, not with wiring. We have an important role to play in a society still filled with hatred and discrimination toward gay persons. This will not be easy. It will go the grain, it will go against the grain of our culture. It may even go against the grain of the conscience which has been shaped by culture. A story from Huckleberry Finn. Huck is caught in a moral dilemma between his conscience, which has been shaped by his culture and church to accept slavery, and a deeper conscience, which has been influenced by his friendship with Jim, the slave owned by Miss Watson. Huck leaves home on a trip. Jim joins him. He's now a runaway slave. What is Huck to do? Will Huck return him to his owner, Miss Watson? Huck struggles. He writes a letter to Miss Watson telling him, telling her of Jim's whereabouts. Temporarily, he has a huge sense of, re of relief that he's written the letter. But then he gets in this awful moral dilemma again. He looks at Jim, he looks at the letter. This is how Mark Twain captures the scene in Huck Finn's words. I took it up and held it in my hand. I was a trembling because I'd got to decide forever betwixt two things, and I noted. it. I studied it a minute, sort of holding my breath, and then says to myself, all right then, I'll go to hell and tore it up. Huck was willing to go against his culture and his church and go to the hell that they told him he would enter. In order to be, to be true to the truer thing he'd gotten hold of by benefit of his relationship with Jim. I think what he got hold of or what got hold of him as well was the new creation, the new creation whose door has been opened to us in Jesus the Christ. If anyone is in Christ, look, there is a new creation. This is from God who, through Christ, reconciled us to God's own self and has given to us the ministry, the diaconia, the service, the calling of reconciliation. Jesus calls us to follow and become part of the new creation. Here is the invitation of the gospel. God loves you exactly as you are. And it is from where you are that we invite you to build with us the banquet of the kingdom and manifest the new creation. The first step in following Jesus is this, young and old, the same to give as much of yourself as you can to as much of Christ as you know. As you take that step, there is a great adventure ahead. There will be more and more and more of yourself to give to the more and more you learn of Christ and the kingdom. The invitation is to us all. Here is his call. Will you come and follow me if I but call your name? Will you go where you don't know and never be the same? Will you let my love be shown? Will you let my name be known? Will you let my life be grown in you and you in me?